Heavenly Father, we just sang uh, this great truth that we are children of God, that you have adopted us into your family by the life and death of your son, Jesus Christ, who's our elder brother in the faith as we worship you, God the Father. And God, by your spirit, you unite us together as the family of God. And God, that is such a great picture that you give us. And we are living that out this morning. And as we come to you, God, this morning to worship you, we pray that you would feed us by your word, that you would actually satisfy our hearts and satisfy our souls with the word of God. And that God, it would grow us up to be more and more faithful to your son, Jesus Christ, and more dependent on him and the salvation he brings through his sacrificial death. And God, we pray this all in the name of him, the great king, Jesus Christ, and by the power of your spirit. Amen. All right, so Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. We're going to be reading 22 verses this morning. So Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 9 to verse 21. Here Paul's giving a number of commands. Remember, these are commands flowing out of the grace of God to mark us as believers in Jesus. This is the word of God. Paul writes, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Then to close it out, Paul writes, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of God. So I'm a big Olympics fan. I know, uh, I'm sure we have a lot of Olympics fans in here. Yes? Yes. Yes. All right. So it's the 2022 Winter Olympics. But I was thinking as I was watching the Olympics about something that happened in the 2018 Olympics, the Winter Olympics in Pyeongchang. And if you remember, I usually don't do this, but I was watching the opening ceremonies of the Pyeongchang opening ceremonies, and you have all these nations streaming in, and in order to really put the exclamation point on the entire thing, as North Korea came in, and remember this was in Pyeongchang, South Korea, as North Korea came in, they started playing the song Imagine by John Lennon. You know the song by John Lennon? It goes like this. Imagine there is no heaven, it's easy if you try, no hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today, ah, ah, I'm not a good singer, okay, bear with me. <laughs> Imagine there's no countries, it's not hard to do, nothing to kill or die for, and religion too. Imagine all the people living in peace, you. You know those words, right? Imagine a world without religion, no heaven, no hell, and the result would be simple. It would be world 
peace. And two thoughts occurred to me as I was listening to that. As North Korea was coming in to face their rival, South Korea, the first was kind of a bit of irony. Because if you know anything about North Korea, North Korea for nearly a century has banned religious expression of all kinds. And if you know of any country that's still plagued by violence, oppression, persecution, and hostility, it is North Korea. So the first thought was irony, but the second thought that came to my mind was how this song, this artifact of popular culture, right, how it so closely resembled the thought of another person that I've actually been reading a lot of recently. And his name is Bertrand Russell. Bertrand Russell is a British philosopher, and he's a very outspoken critic of religion in general and Christianity specifically. Well, in 1930, Russell wrote an essay entitled, Has Religion Made Useful Contributions to Civilization? And there, Russell writes these words. He says, Religion prevents us from removing the fundamental causes of war. Religion prevents us from, the teaching, from teaching the ethic of scientific cooperation in place of the old, fierce doctrines of sin and punishment. It is possible that mankind is on the threshold of a golden age. But if so, it will first be necessary to slay the dragon that guards the door. And this dragon... <laughs> is religion. And now, I know that some of us really wonder that same thing. We, we wonder, well, would the world be better off if there wasn't any religion, if there, if there wasn't any Christianity? And could we finally attain this golden age if we stopped insisting on old, fierce religious doctrines? And many of us are tempted to think as well, well, maybe religion is the problem. Maybe religion is the problem. Perhaps if we just slay that dragon finally, then humans will lay down their swords once and for all and will finally have peace. And now I find it fascinating that Paul, the writer of this letter in Romans, of the verses that we just read, he actually says, hey, that vision, that vision that was painted by Russell and was painted by Lenin, that that vision of a world enveloped by peace and a world defined by cooperation and a world free from war and oppression and tears, that world we all long for, that vision is actually a reality. That there is a reality, according to Paul, that is coming our way and that Jesus himself has accomplished. In fact, he has a term for this. Paul calls this reality glory. You remember in a couple chapters ago, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, talking about this future reality called glory, he said this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul continues by saying, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So see, what Paul is saying here is, hey, there, there are two realities. There is the reality at play here on the one hand, which we experience every day. It's the reality of this world, as Paul calls it, this present age, that is under the rule of death. 
And under the rule of death, it's marked by sufferings and futility and bondage and corruption. And Paul has in mind here everything ranging from cancer to multiple sclerosis to broken homes to alcoholism. And Paul says that is one reality. But Paul says, on the other hand, there is this other reality. A reality of a world that is to be revealed to us, ruled not by death, but by Jesus himself who has conquered death. And that reality is marked by freedom, freedom from corruption, freedom from bondage, even freedom from death itself. It's a reality. And by the way, we all long for this, don't we? That reality, which is to come. I actually think I may have shared this illustration before, but it comes from a writer. Her name is Jill Miller. Jill Miller talks about her daughter, Kim, who was born with an aggressive form of autism. And because of this aggressive form of autism, she actually can't speak. And she was in a choir, even though she couldn't speak, she was in a choir with her sister, whose name was Sarah Lynn. And Sarah Lynn and her were sitting in the choir and they were listening to music and they were listening to Johann Sebastian Bach's Messiah. And the hallelujah chorus, you know, that finishes it off again, I'm not going to sing for you, but the hallelujah chorus that finishes it off, she's listening to this and she signs, Kim signs over to her sister, Sarah Lynn, something, and Sarah Lynn breaks down in tears. And so the leader of the choir, the teacher, looks at Sarah Lynn and says, Sarah Lynn, what did Kim just say? Sarah Lynn said, Kim just told me when I'm in heaven, I'll sound just like that. We all long for that reality, don't we? When we'll be free from the bondage of corruption and death itself, and people like Kim will receive this voice that she's always longed for. That's the reality that we hope for. Well, Paul says it is a reality. Glory is a thing. And what Paul told us last week, remember this, Paul said, hey, that reality is not simply reserved for the future, but it actually can be lived into now. That we can experience, not in full, not in perfection, but we can experience shades of glory now. Remember Paul said this? He said, do not be conformed to this world Because this world's not all there is. He says instead, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. We are to be people who live for glory, transformed by Jesus' death in the past, but also living into the transformation which is to come in Jesus in the future. And so Paul this morning in those verses we read, Romans uh, chapter 12, verses 9 through 21, Paul continues on this same line of thought telling us and encouraging us, appealing to us as those who have been transformed by Jesus and awaiting the coming glory, he says we can actually live into and begin to reflect the reality of that glory now. And as you look at verses 9 through 21, again, if you just have it open in front of you, and you probably noticed it as I was reading, Paul seems to be kind of throwing spaghetti at the wall, so to speak, right? He's just giving command after command, saying, love one another in one breath, and then saying, you know, hold fast to what is good in another breath. And then he's talking about not retributing vengeance on any other person who shows you evil and persecution. And it looks like Paul's giving this overwhelming sporadic thought about how to live in this world. But if you look closely at these verses, you'll actually notice that Paul's commands here, his encouragement to us, they fall into really three categories. The first is this. Paul says, there are marks 
that stand out, three marks that mark a follower of Jesus living for glory. The first mark is they're marked by their personal behavior, and that's in verse 9. We see that pretty clearly in verse 9. He also says, those who have been transformed by Jesus are marked by their behavior toward one another, their behavior toward those in the church specifically. And then third, Paul says, uh, followers of Jesus are marked by their behavior toward their enemies. And now this morning, I'm just going to focus on the first two. We're going to save the, the last one for next week. But that's what we're going to look at this morning. The marks of those who, by the grace of Jesus, live for glory. They are marked by their personal behavior and their behavior toward one another. So let's dive right in. First, Paul says, those who live for glory are marked by a different way they conduct themselves personally in their personal behavior. And not surprisingly, based on what the Bible says about God, Paul begins by saying, Those who are marked by Jesus are characterized by love. So verse 9, Paul says, Let our love be genuine. Let love be genuine. This is a personal command of Paul. And that word genuine there, in the Greek, is actually a familiar term. It's going to sound familiar to you. It's hypocritos. Hypocritos. Meaning, Paul is saying, When you love one another, don't let your love be hypocritical. That is, when you show love toward God and you express love toward other people, our love is to not be hypocritical. And that word hypocrite is actually a rich Greek word. It comes from Greek theater. The hypocrite was the play actor. It was the person who was on stage, and that person would be usually wearing a mask. So they would look one way on the outside, but it didn't truly reflect who was on the inside. They were play acting, right? What was external was different from the person internally. And now my daughter, Lainey, you know, she has a various masks that she's been receiving. They've been making these in school. And she came home with a mask of a giraffe the other day. And, you know, it has spots on it and horns and ears. Well, she decided she's going to take off the ears and she's going to take off the spots and just have this yellow face with horns. And she gave this new animal a name. She called it a jungalope. And if you're not familiar with a jungalope, a jungalope is about three feet tall. It skips about four and five inches off the ground, and it sings songs throughout the house to the movie musical, The Greatest Showman. That's what a jungalope does. And it's a very rare animal. You may have never seen it, but it is native to Colorado, Littleton, Colorado, in fact, so I'm sure you're going to see it soon. And when Lainey is playing this jungalope throughout the house, right, She's in her own world. She's playing one part. But as soon as the mask comes off, the jungalope fades away and Lainey reappears. And Paul says, hey, when we live out in love toward God and toward one another, this is the encouragement that we need, that our love should not be merely external, but it should actually reflect something true inside of us that's been changed by God himself. And it's interesting Jesus actually uses this word hypocritical over and over and over again. In fact, when commentators look at Romans chapter 12 through 15, they notice that Paul is drawing on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount pretty frequently. You'll remember that word hypocrite, in fact. Jesus uses that word repeatedly in his Sermon on the Mount, where he's speaking with his disciples and this group of followers, and he's told, and he tells them this, when you give to the needy, Sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. 
But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And this goes beyond just our charitable contributions or our giving as an expression of love. Jesus continues, he says, hey, when you pray and speak to your heavenly father in prayer, expressing your love to him, he says this, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And then last of all, Paul, or sorry, not Paul, Jesus, he continues. He says, hey, when you fast, showing your dependency, not on even food or drink, things that we need for our body, but when you fast and show you love God even over food and water, he says this, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces and their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. So you notice what Jesus is saying here. It's very similar to what Paul is saying. Is that hypocrites, when they live out these acts of love, they do these acts of love merely externally. And you can see that whenever they give, whenever they pray, whenever they fast, or whenever they do anything whatsoever, it is merely external because Jesus says over and over again, what's the motive that they're doing those things for? Did you notice? Jesus says it's so that they would be seen by others. In other words, what they're doing is they are putting on a mask that says godly and loving, but in reality, what's going on behind it is they want other people to see them being godly and being loving. T.S. Eliot He's a writer, uh, very influential. He actually wrote a lot of the Hobbit series and uh, the, um, what's the other one? Lord of the Rings. There we go. Thank you. <laughs> he wrote Lord of the Rings. And uh, he said something fantastic on this point in one of his plays, Murder in the Cathedral. There he writes, quote, the last temptation is the greatest treason. The last temptation is the greatest treason to do the right thing for the wrong reason. What Eliot was saying is that that is the essence of hypocrisy and it's our greatest temptation to do the right thing externally, but for the wrong motive, the wrong reason, do it internally. And when you look back to Jesus, right, Jesus pits this against another motive that should be guiding our hearts if we're filled with God's spirit by the transforming power of Jesus. Jesus says the right motivation, the right reason, the sincere act of love for God and others is that we would be seen by our Heavenly Father. So you see the difference. Hypocrisy acts to be seen by others to think that we're godly and loving, but true, sincere, devout acts of love are done in gratitude to who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus Christ, to do it for our God, our Father in heaven. In other words, genuine love is a, motive, is a love motivated 
to please God himself by reflecting the thing that God loves most, which is Jesus himself. And as you look back, look back at verse 9 with me. This is uh, Paul again. Look back at verse 9 because Paul goes from talking about love and it seems like he goes down a rabbit trail, doesn't it? Paul says, let love be genuine. But then almost as a complete 180, he says, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. And we usually read this verse and we usually think of these as two completely disconnected thoughts. But actually, in Paul's mind, these two things are not separate topics. They are actually intimately joined with one another. And the reason that we usually think, hey, love and abhorrence of evil and holding fast to what is good, usually we think those are disconnected because as 21st century Western Americans, right, our understanding and our conception of love is not really shaped by what the Bible says about love, but rather it's been shaped by our culture. So I was thinking of, hey, what's a good definition that kind of encapsulates how we think about love as 21st century Americans. Here's what I came up with. Ready? Love in Western American culture means unconditional positive affirmation of another person. Do you think that's fair? Unconditional positive affirmation of another person. That to love someone is to affirm a person no matter what they do or what they say or how they are living and to unconditionally say, hey, that is great. Do whatever makes you happy. And we see that love in our conception is closely tied to whatever makes you happy. But you have to realize that when the Bible talks about love, it talks about it in a completely different terminology. The Bible's definition of love is something like this. Love, according to the Bible, is to desire and strive for what is morally good for another person. To love and to strive for what is morally good for another person. So whereas we tie love to somebody's happiness, the Bible ties it to what is morally good for a person. And you can see right away how these create friction with one another and bump heads with one another, can't you? For instance, think of a good friend of yours. Say you have a friend from college and she calls you up in the middle of the night. Now you haven't seen this friend in 10 years, but you guys were thick as thieves when you guys were in college. And she calls you up and she says, hey, you know what? I have three kids, I've been married for 10 years, but I wanna pursue my dreams. And I'm going to pursue my dreams. Remember what my dream was in college? And you say, no, I don't remember. She says, remember, I wanted to run off to Paris and I wanted to be a professional wine taster in Paris. And now your first thought, if you're using the paradigm of Western 21st century love, what would you say to that person? You might say to her, well, you go, girl. You go, girl. Go do what makes you happy. But you realize that that's starkly different from what you might say if you're operating with a biblical conception of love, wouldn't it? You might say something like this. If you're operating with a biblical definition of love, a love that strives for the moral good of that person and the people around her, you might ask her questions like this. Hey, have you thought about your family? Or, hey, so-and-so, I'm your friend, I love you, but have you thought about your husband and your kids? Have you thought about how it might affect them neg negatively? In fact, you might even go as far as saying, hey, because I love you, I want you to know that that thought is evil. 
that is actually abhorrent, that it will not lead to your good or the good of your family or the good of anyone around you. In fact, it's completely disconnected from that. And I would wager that we would all think if we said, you go girl, we would think that would be completely and supremely unloving. So Paul puts these two ideas side by side, doesn't he? He says, hey, our love should be genuine. It should be unhypocritical, wrought by God's spirit inside of us, seeking to please God as our heavenly father. And therefore, what God calls good is what we cling to and call good. And what God calls evil, we abhor and repel against because we know that it doesn't reflect the goodness and the love and the character of God himself. Because God calls faithfulness good, we should abhor infidelity. Because God loves marriage, we should hate and abhor anything that might cause separation and divorce. Because God loves people with a genuine love that's willing to die and be crucified for their good, we likewise should hate anything that seeks to destroy God's image and God's character being formed in anybody else. Becky Pipper, I think, puts this perfectly. She sums this up really well. Becky Pippert's an evangelical author. She wrote, quote, Think of how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Real love stands against the deception, the lie, and the sin that destroys. Right? We all know people in our life who have been ravaged by poor decisions. So to truly love that person is to stand in front of that person and stand against the deception that they think, hey, whatever makes me happy is going to lead to my greatest fulfillment. True love and genuine love does not merely affirm what would otherwise destroy someone, but it makes them, makes them see In love, in kindness, it makes them see that their moral good would lead to their greatest flourishing and their greatest happiness in the end. That's what genuine love is. So Paul, again, saying, hey, as people marked by the glory which is to come and by the death of Jesus Christ, which is behind us, we should be people who are marked with this kind of genuine love, a genuine love that seeks to please God our Father. And as a result, works itself out in us abhorring what is evil, what God calls evil, and holding fast to what is good, what God calls good. But Paul continues, he says, hey, that mark of personal behavior is not where it ends. He says it actually overflows then in the way that we interact with one another, specifically how we interact with the church. And you can see that Paul's understanding of how we are to live as a church it really comes to surface in the way that we should even think about one another as the body of Christ, about the church being the church. Paul says in verse 10, he says, love one another with brotherly affection. Love one another with brotherly affection. And you can't see this in the English, but two words are used for love in this very verse. Paul, again, Going into the Greek here, sorry to do this, but he uses the first word, Philadelphia, which means brotherly love. That's what he means by brotherly affection. But then he uses another word. It's called philostorge. And philostorge is the love that a mother would have for her infant newborn. Paul is saying, using both of these words, that we should conceive of one another as, as being a part of the body of Christ, we should conceive of one another as members of the same family. 
That should be how we conceive of one another as followers of Jesus. And again, this would have been radically different in Roman culture who would have thought that this was completely weird, but this is pretty radically culture for our culture as well, isn't it? Because usually when we conceive of our relationship to the church, we usually think of it in kind of a transactional sort of way, don't we? For instance, I was just sitting down with a person uh, not too long ago and uh, had heard a conversation that made this uh, rattle back in my mind when I was sitting down with this person. I loved this person. I knew this person for a long time. And they were in a really bad spot. And they came to me and said, hey, you know what? I, just, I don't even really see why I need the church. I don't see why I need to come on a Sunday. I don't need to see why I need to be involved with other people. Because whatever I get by going to church, I can get by doing myself privately. I can listen to the sermon online. I can sing with the music online. Why do I need to be involved and do anything with the church when I can do and get those things privately? And my first thought was, well, this guy needs a Greek dictionary. He needs to know the definition of philostorge, doesn't he? But I didn't have my Greek dictionary. So instead, I did think of something very similar. Hey, when you think of your family... When you think of your family, when you think of your mom, when you think of your brother, when you think of your sister, do you think in terms of what you can get out of that person personally? Do you think of your mom and think, hey, how can my mom benefit me in my life today? You usually don't think in those terms when you think of your family, do you? Usually when we think of our family, we think of how can I love this person in my family? How can I serve this person in my family? So why is it that our first thought when we think of the church often comes in consumer terms? What can I get out of it? How can I benefit out of this? But Paul reminds us here, hey, as we conceive of our relationship with one another, it should be marked by brotherly love, by philostorge love, by intimate love of a mother for her daughter or a mother for her son. And we're united by God's spirit through faith in Jesus under the care of God our Father. That's our family. I mentioned this person last week, Sinclair Ferguson. Sinclair Ferguson said, hey, it is really tempting as 21st century Americans to not think of the church as American Airlines. And what he meant by that, I had to actually unpack and think about what he meant by that, but think of what you do when you go onto an American Airlines flight. If you're anything like me, here's what you do. You want to sit down in 12A and not talk to person in 12B. In fact, you want to look straight ahead and put in your earphones. And if you're honest, again, if you're anything like me, you want to get your peanuts, you want to get your instant coffee, and you want to watch ESPN for four straight hours, don't you? And my wife does the same thing. She sits down and she'll do the same thing, except she'll watch HGTV, which is like the female equivalent of ESPN, I suppose. But you want to just get your ticket and go to a common destination, right, while you're traveling with others. Well, Paul says, hey, you cannot think of yourself in those terms as the body of Christ, as those who have been marked by the death of Jesus and the glory to come. You need to see your relational bonds biologically in just as important terms, spiritually. So I was actually thinking about this. What, what happens with a person when they don't have a familial bond? They've actually done studies about, about this. Harvard, uh, Harvard and the Boston uh, Children's Hospital actually recently came out with a study. It was a longitudinal study of Romanian orphans. 
and these Romanian orphans who had not had any familial or parental care in their life. And the head of that study, his name was Charles Nelson, he was interviewed by NPR, and he said the results of this study were heartbreaking and devastating. He said when he first visited the orphanages in 1999, he would see children, and they would just be rocking back and forth in their cribs, soothing themselves. And he said that was a telltale sign of somebody who has autism, but they didn't have autism. And then he said he would go up to toddlers, and he would see that they had this desperate need for attention. They'd reach out their arms as though they were saying to you, please pick me up. And Nelson says, you would pick the child up, but immediately they would push you away and want to go down. And then the second you'd put him down, they'd reach back up to you as if saying, please pick me up. And it would be over and over and over again. The oddest behaviors that they saw, though, were things that kind of resonated that what is actually going on with these uh, children is uh, real problems with their brain development. And Nelson said he and the other researchers began to study these children using this new technology, which would measure the electrical brain activity that was going on in these children's minds. And he said, he put this in layman's terms, he said, a normal person, think of their brain as producing a 100-watt light bulb. He said for these orphans, it was as if they had a 40-watt light bulb. And he concluded the study or the interview with NPR by saying that the cause of this wasn't anything as simple as malnutrition. It was a different kind of deprivation. The lack of a parent, the lack of a family, or someone who acted as such. So you see, if that's true about our biological need for a family, for parents, for brothers, for sisters, for some sort of relational intimacy, how much more is that a need for our spiritual family? That our souls will atrophy and decline if we're not in the community of God, the family of God. So that's why Paul says, verse 10, he says, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. And as a family, Paul makes it clear in the preceding verses here. He says, hey, as a family, you should be deeply concerned about the needs of other people in the family. And this includes physical needs and it includes emotional needs. Physical needs in verse 13. Notice Paul says, contribute to the needs of the saints. These are physical needs, by the way. And seek to show hospitality. So take people in who do not have a home. Also share what you have in common with others. But it also relates to emotional needs. Verse 15. Paul says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. That is, just as you wouldn't deny your brother a warm bed or help financially to pay the bills, just as you wouldn't go to your grieving mother and attend to her grief, and just as you would celebrate your sister when she graduates from college, so as the family of God... We should care for the needs of one another. And now if you're familiar with the New Testament, you know that this was a distinctive mark of the earliest Christians. A distinctive mark, so much so that it caught the attention of Luke, who wrote this book called the Acts of the Apostles. It's the history of the early church. And there he writes that for all those converts who came to know Jesus, he said the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they held everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. 
and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, and as many as were owners of lands or houses, they sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as they had need. So notice, and you've got to be clear here, what the apostle is not saying here, or what Luke is not saying here, is he's not saying, hey, private property should be abolished. He's not saying that the government should somehow be the centralized owner of good and services. That's not what he's saying. But what he is saying is that those who are in the family of God, they should not count their ownership of resources as something that's their own, but they should consider it a stewardship that is supposed to be contributing to the needs of those who are in their midst and needs of those in the family of God. And they should give those things abundantly as they need arises. And so this was caught by the attention of Luke. It was also caught by the attention of the highest people in Roman society because in Roman society, it was all about power and it was all about wealth. So to live in this sort of way would have been completely foreign to people in Roman society, and it caught the attention of people who were in Roman society, so much so that it actually caused them great shame. Emperor Julian, he lived in the fourth century. When he was witnessing Christians who were taking in Sikh people into their house and caring for their needs and bringing them back to sustenance, he wrote a letter to the high priest, a pagan priest of Galatia, and he was urging this high priest, compete with the Christians because they're making us look bad. He wrote these words. This is a direct quote. The impious Galileans, that means the Christians, the impious Galileans, in addition to supporting their own, support our poor. And it's shameful that our poor should be wanting our aid. Now, can you imagine how that letter was received by the high priest in Galatia? Well, not well, by the way. Because one historian writes this, there was little or no response to Julian's proposals because there were no doctrines and no traditional practices for the pagan priests to follow the order. Christians believed in eternal life. Thus, they were able to care for the sick and dying and for the poor because they had a better future that awaited them. At most, pagans believed in an unattractive existence in the underworld. See, as people who are awaiting a glory to come, they could live as if this world wasn't all that there is. It was strange in the Roman world to care for sick and dying and poor people because this life was all that there was worth living for, to attain wealth and to attain power. But for Christians who were living for glory, they could sacrifice their welfare now, knowing a better future awaited them. And it's out of this sense, the sense that Paul is saying, hey, because of the sacrificial death of Jesus, who shows us to sacrifice ourselves for others, because of that glory that he shows us is coming, he says, we can live as the family of God and have images of eternal life break in now, glory that happens here and bring us together as the family of God. One person I think who emulated this so well as I close here was Billy Graham. Billy Graham was this mass evangelist. He would travel around the United States. It's said that Billy Graham probably preached to more people than anybody else who's ever lived. Well, Billy Graham got a speaking invitation to Jackson, Mississippi in 1952. And in 1952, there was a rule. 
that if you were going to preach to a mass crowd, if you were going to gather as a mass crowd, then you had to have a rope that separated blacks on one side and whites on the other. And Billy Graham, four hours before he was supposed to preach to this large audience in Jackson, Mississippi, he said, there is absolutely no way that I'm going to preach under these conditions. So what Billy Graham did is he actually walked out into the crowd four minutes before the service started. And rung by rung, he took this red rope and he started unwinding it. He started taking the rope down and pulling it toward himself. Until at the end, he had this massive rope piled up at his feet. And he said, now this is where I will preach to the family of God that Jesus has brought together where there is neither black or white. And Billy Graham was asked afterward, he was asked about that day, and he said, there is no other force that exists besides the church that can bring people together week after week and deal with their deepest hurts and suspicions. Of all people, Christians should be the most active in reaching out to those who are different from themselves instead of accepting the status quo of division and animosity. And then he continued, he said, the issues that face us are complex and enormous and simply wishing they will go away will not solve them. But this is what I know. The closer people of all races get to Christ and his cross, the closer they get to one another. Remember the vision that we started with. Remember the vision by Lenin. Remember the vision by... Uh, Bertrand Russell, the vision of a world enveloped by peace, no division, no warfare, but a world with no strife. Paul says here that vision is not achieved by erasing division. It's not erased by erasing, or it's not achieved by erasing the church or erasing Christianity, but instead it is achieved by embracing the cross of Jesus Christ, the only one, the only king who can bring people as diverse as black and white together in the same family and to worship him as we will one day in eternally, eternity when he comes again. So the glory of God is one people. That's what Paul says marks us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your love for us, you brought your son, Jesus Christ, to not only die for our sins, but to bring us into one common family where we can worship you, God, as our Father. And God, we have this great hope in Jesus as well that not only did he die for us in the past to forgive us our sins and bring us together, but he's promising us an eternal reality, eternal glory, where there, God, you will be worshipped by people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people group. And God, I pray that as we as a church seek to be marked by the grace of God in our life, that you would make us people who are changed personally, God, to sincerely love one another, to hate what is evil and to love and hold fast to what is good, to allow your definition of love, God, to penetrate our hearts and help us live. And God, you would also help us be people who love one another as the family of God, because that is what your desire is. Help us love and serve one another as brothers and sisters, as fathers and mothers, as sons and daughters. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.